This is great encouraging. I hope the things we have chosen to speak on this morning you'll find helpful and encouraging in your personal faith, as well as your commitment to live a life that gives glory to God and not glory to Satan. You know, we thank God for our food, we thank God for our transportation and our, our blessings, but I hope we use none of these blessings to fulfill sinful desires. That's, that's wrong. It just doesn't make sense. And so we are thankful to God for all of our blessings when we pray. And we really focus on using all of our blessings for God's glory. And that's what we want our lives to accomplish. In eternity, that's the only thing that will matter, is laying up treasures in heaven, not the treasures that are here on this earth. This morning, I appreciate so much the songs that have been sang and the brother that read that passage for us about Jesus Christ. You know, our faith, uh, let me talk just a little bit about faith here to begin with. It's been interesting uh, when I talk to people about faith and ask them about what they believe, they talk about their feelings. They talk about feeling. I, I feel, uh, you know, uh, helpful. I feel, sometimes I feel anxious. Sometimes I have doubts and different kinds of things. Well, all of us deal with those kinds of things in our life. But when the Bible speaks of true faith, about that conviction, uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 1, that conviction of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, there seems to be a stronger kind of thing that's there rather than a feeling. And so I did a study of this, and I figured out, and all of us can figure out, and we all confront at least one time or another, that faith is not a feeling, that our feelings come from our faith. What we believe creates feelings. And that is so important to understand that faith is not a feeling. Faith is a conviction. It's a belief. It's a belief that something is true or not true. A confidence that we have that someone is speaking that is telling us the truth. You know, whenever in the Old Testament those, those boys got together and they wanted to convince their dad that this son that he loved had died they dipped the coat of many colors in blood, and they took it to their father and say, uh, he's dead, something ripped him up, something ate him, you know, uh, he was killed by a wild beast. What was the reaction of the father? The father had no reason to doubt what his sons were telling him. And so his reaction to that evidence was sorrow. Oh, my son is dead, just like if your son was dead. You know, we've got a picture of him dead or something happened. Well, you would respond. You would go, this is not a fake thing. And then all of a sudden you would find out later, this was fake. The picture was fake. The coat was fake. It would make you upset, you know, in, in a lot of ways. See, the conviction, the feelings come from confidence in testimony. If we believe our children... We take a belief that, yeah, the son really died, when in reality, he hadn't. And he was later be set free from uh, the famine because of all of this blessing, his son not being dead, but instead protecting the family. Well, our feelings sometimes betray us. Sometimes people we trust or things we trust betray us. And we have feelings 
But feelings are not faith. Feelings are not the faith. That's not what we're, what we're all about. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus, when talking to those people uh, that believed on him, he, or, or that should have believed on him, he says, now listen, consult the word of God. Go back and study to see if these things be so. Go back and check it out. See if I fulfill the prophecies. Whenever John the Baptist wanted to know if this was Jesus, if this was truly the Messiah, John said, "Go back." You know, I mean, excuse me. Whenever John's disciples went to Jesus, and John told him, "Check it out," those disciples came back, and he, Jesus said to them, "Tell him this. Tell him the poor are taken care of, the heals, all, all healing, all the things that are going on." And they came back to John with that message, and he goes, "Ah, oh, that was the Messiah." So why do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God this morning? Jesus said, search the scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. He's talking about the Old Testament prophecies. The verse that we had read in our hearing is one of the passages. Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22 are some of the greatest passages in the Old Testament to me personally. They're the ones that convicted me and convinced me that Jesus was who he claims to be. Isaiah being written at least 700 years before or possibly uh, under different circumstances, we find that Psalms, all, all of these passages, are beautiful for us, but they testify of who Jesus really was. God does not ask us just to make a leap of faith. I just want to believe it. I want you to believe that this is the best car to buy in the world out there. I'm not selling cars this morning, and I'm not selling religion either. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm not a crook. Only real old people can know what that means. But anyway, the whole point I'm getting at here is that whenever we talk about cars, we can say, well, I believe this is the best. But you can say, what does Consumer Reports say? I want to find out something. Let's do some research here. Let's see if these engines last a long time. Let's check this out. Well, the same thing is true with religion. Before people get you to believe things, they shouldn't just say, well, that guy really was enthusiastic about what he believed. Yeah, well, if you're a Chevy guy, you believe the Ford guys are deluded, and likewise the, in return. Only today we all believe in Toyota. So anyway, the whole point I'm getting at here is that we're not going to ask, we're, God doesn't ask us to trust an unsub, unsubstantiated source. He wants us to be ready to give an answer. If you have your Bibles, please go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, what does the scripture say there? 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, to make a defense, notice, to everyone who asks you to give an account for, underline that. I'm reading from New American Standard, but New King James does good there. Notice, to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. <laughs> give an account. If I say to you, if I say to you, I believe Jesus is a Christ, you have a right to say, to say, why? Give an account for that hope. You possess a hope. Share with me why you have that faith, that belief, that confidence. 
share with that with me. Well, I think one of the reasons why we as the church maybe aren't as strong as we need to be is because we build our faith, our faith, our practice, our religion on feelings instead of actual faith. A faith is something we should be able to give an account for, to be able to give a scriptural answer for, make a defense for. Now, I want to encourage you, this is one of the few times, and I'm not selling books in the lobby, I'm going to recommend a book to you. It's a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. There's four versions of it. Get the latest one. It's been rewritten. Uh, and in chapter 9, the entire chapter is devoted to prophecies and fulfillment about Jesus. And there's 350 of them. Most commonly, there's 320 that are accepted even by Jews themselves. But there's over 350 of them. But you should really get that foundation for yourself. Make your faith your own. Make it so that it's not built on your trust of your mom or your dad or somebody else. Make sure it's not just based on feelings and how excited the person was, but on a real genuine foundation. They are they which testify of me, Jesus says, when pointing to the Old Testament scriptures. Search the scriptures. And he was talking about the Old Testament. For they are they which testify of me. In other words, he said, your faith is going to be confident when you understand the divine nature of prophecy. They made prophecies over 700 years, 500 years. All kinds of prophecies are in the Old Testament about Jesus. And they came true in one lifetime, in one flash of time. He was born at the right place. There were two Bethlehems. Did you know that? There was a Bethlehem, and there was another the king of David's, uh, David's city, and there was another one called Bethlehem Ephrathah. God decided that Bethlehem, that was just right close to each other, that that was the one that Jesus was going to be born in. The Bible specifies which one. The Bible specifies the kind of conditions. The Bible specifies all kinds of things that Jesus could not have just personally fulfilled by his desire to do it. I want to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. He couldn't have decided to be born of a virgin. He couldn't have decided to be born where he was born. All of these other things that have happened, you can accuse Jesus of a lot of things, but he can't. He can't by his own will fulfill many of the prophecies that were made. Now, sometimes they did. Sometimes his behavior showed that he fulfilled <laughs> those prophecies, his compassion, and other kinds of things. But what is the reason for our hope that we can give an answer for today? What is the basis for our hope? This is something we should be able to give an answer to. Have you had shared with others why you have the, the confidence you have in what Jesus teaches and what God teaches in his word? Have you done that? Well, one of the, one of the basic things that causes us to have faith, this side of the cross, is the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Let's, go, let's look at these passages. If you have your Bible out this morning, let's look at these passages together. We're going to be going to, to many of them. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again 
unto a living hope. The word living lively is King James Version. But it means living or active or vibrant or vital hope by the resurrection or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. The main reason, one of the main reasons I have confidence that Jesus is who he claims to be is he said, you tear down this body, this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. And he did. They killed him. They thought he was talking about the, the actual temple, but he said no. Talking about his body. He died three days later without any defibrillator on the part of, of the disciples. He came back from the dead. Was he dead? Yes. He was dead. They pierced his side. Forth came blood and water. This proved he was drained. There was many things about Jesus. He didn't just swoon. I'm going to be very broad here, considering our audience. You know, I've studied a lot of world religions just to see if they've been true, what kind of truth claims they made. And one of the things that Islam says about Jesus is that he swooned, he fainted, and they took him off the cross, and in the cool of the cave where he was planted... He came back to life and things, and, and that's, he didn't really die. He just swooned. That's what's called the swoon theory. My friends, that's not good. They forget that his side was pierced. They forget that. My friends, he died on the cross. He was taken off the cross and put in the tomb. Three days later, he came forth from that grave. That's amazing to me. And that's something that nobody else has been able to do. When I study other world religions, they have sometimes the deity is reincarnated into several different versions throughout the years, different Buddhas or different master teachers. And I even know some friends here in Oregon that I grew up with that went off in Baha'i. Every thousand years a master teacher comes and teaches us new things. Perhaps you have some friends in the Baha'i family. But, my friends, none of them make the claim of going into the grave and coming out of it by their own power three days later. Yes, it was Jesus' own power that brought him forth from the grave. He, said, he challenged them all, all the time. He challenged them. He says, no man takes my life from me. Unless I let you do it, you're not going to be able to kill me. He says, I lay it down of my own. And he says, and if I lay it down, I will take it again. My friends, they remembered these statements. They understood it was by Jesus' own power that he allowed himself to die, and then he brought himself forth from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus is amazing. Why do people quit the church over hypocrites? I can't, I'm going to make a side point here. That, that is amazing to me. My faith isn't based on whether a church is friendly or not, or whether they got the right kind of snacks, or whatever social service they provide. The whole point is, is we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Because of the resurrection from the dead, 
And we should believe that regardless of how anybody acts or whether they even disrespect you. The point of the matter, it's not based on their behavior. It's based on his behavior. He came forth from the grave. So don't let your faith be discouraged by others' hypocrisy. Don't let your faith be shaken by others' behavior or even a lack of popularity. You know, in reality, there are far more Christians in Africa than there are in America in a lot of, in a lot of senses anymore. And you look at me and say, well, wow, is the, is, the face, is the faith all over the face of the earth? Yes, it is. I never thought that the second most dangerous place in the world is Bangladesh, and there are seven congregations there. That's amazing to me. It's amazing. In northern India, we need to pray for our brethren in India. We need to pray for our brethren in South America. We need to pray for our brethren in, in Middle America, in Mexico, and Honduras. We need to pray for our brethren all over the world. But they don't have to know me to be brethren. People ask me if there's brethren in China. I really believe that there is. In fact, the public proclamation of churches is very much suppressed there. But there are many, many home churches. And you take the authority of the word of God, the seed of the kingdom, Luke 8 and 11, and you sow the pure seed of the kingdom, and all you can get is Christians. That's all you can get. There are people who worship with one cup and one loaf in India and in uh, Africa and in China. All over the world, we discover them all the time. We, what, during my lifetime, we discovered a bunch of churches in Nebraska. They're all over. The whole point is, is whenever you have the seed of the kingdom, which is the pure word of God, all it can produce is just Christians. In order to get a denomination, you have to have the Bible plus whatever unique things it is to that. You never belong to that kind of a church, the Bible plus. You just need the Bible. It is the seed of the kingdom, Luke 8 and 11. It's what makes Christians. It is the ten things that causes us, our faith to rest is on the solid rock of faith that is based on testimony in the word of God. Let your faith be built on that, not some feelings given to you. Well, let's continue on. Otherwise, our faith is futile. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, there were some questions raised about the resurrection. He says, listen, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, you're still in your sins. It's all worthless. We're found to be liars. By the way, if you guys don't mind, can I ask if the door be raised? It is hot in here. And I'm not preaching on hay music. It's warm. Uh, I, would, I don't know others maybe cold, but I'm not. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. For those of you who are cold, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I really, uh, I thank you for that. But here in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, notice how he, he's, they're challenged. He said, how, how, how does some among you say that resurrection's already passed? He says, if Christ to be not raised, you're still in your sin. And we're found to be miserable. We're found to be liars. You know, the whole point he's getting there is, this isn't based on feelings. It's based on if Jesus was the resurrection. Well, let's read it. I'm sorry. I said I was going to read most of it. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 15, verse. let's start reading verse 14. 
Well, let's start verse 12. Now, Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses because we've testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If in fact the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And those who fall asleep in Christ have perished. For if we hope in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. Now these false Gnostic teachers that had uh, afflicted the Corinthian church at that time, he says, listen, these guys are wrong. Either it's all true or it's all false. And if it's false, we're found liars, everything's wrong, you're still in your sins, and there's no salvation in Christ. But if Jesus is right, let's get the implication of Scripture here. If Jesus did come forth from the grave, then we have to look forward to a resurrection and a hope and something that's in the future that is far beyond what we even imagine right here and right now. Well, what evidence is there to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, there's eyewitness testimony. I want to talk about some of that that's recorded for us in the Word of God. You know, there's a book on Christian evidences. This is called Apologetics, and I really encourage you to read some about some of these things. But there was a, a lawyer that studied the evidence for Christ and asked if it would hold up in court. And he came to the conclusion, yes, these eyewitnesses were true because their testimony was founded on more than just them saying it. They looked at their behavior as well. Let's look at the type of evidence used in a court of law to establish facts of or history. Number one, the number of witnesses. How many people saw this? Did a lot of people, do they agree in their witness? They may have different descriptions, but they all agree something happened, and they're going to describe and share it. Well, it's that which strengthens uh, testimony is the number of witnesses. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6, where there it says on the mouth of two or three witnesses. In other words, when you have the more witnesses, the more veracity it gives the testimony itself. Considers Paul's list. In Paul's list in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, Paul here in this passage this entire chapter is a defense of the resurrection, by the way. 1 Corinthians 15. Notice what he says in verse 3 through verse 8. I delivered to you of first importance that which I uh, also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, Jesus Christ died, was buried, and raised. Okay, Paul. We, we trust you, but is there more reason than that? Oh, yeah, notice. Notice. And according to, and after that, talking about his resurrection, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. In other words, I wish they knew they would have added the word remain alive until now. In other words, at the time that 1 Corinthians was written, he said, there's over 500 people who saw him when he raised them. Most of them are still alive right now when I'm writing this letter, which is some 30 years later. This is amazing. Notice. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. 
Well, Paul, this is this is amazing. All these people testify to the resurrected Jesus. Yes. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what, what he looked like. And he said when he came forth from the grave, they testified that he was resurrected. It was him, the one who was killed, that was resurrected from the grave. And they, for those 40 days when Jesus walked the earth, he was seen by many, many people. And they were still faithful followers of Jesus years later. This is amazing. This is Paul's list here. During the 40 days after his resurrection, hundreds saw Jesus. Acts 1, 1 through 3. There were many eyewitnesses, too many to be mass hallucination, to be just something that I, I, we all wish that it really was that way. No, no, that's it, no. You know, Elvis left the building. <laughs> what I mean is, there's sometimes a little mass hallucination when someone sees Elvis in a store. <laughs> you know, you kind of like, what have they been taking? And, uh, you know, the other, uh, the other night at Mom's house, we had a young man who the police told us was high on meth, trying to find a way into to mom's house and it was weird it was weird i don't know what he was looking at but you know i i know a lot of people who have taken drugs through the years and some of them you know they see weird things you know one person said they they saw me and i said well how much did i weigh you know oh you were really skinny i said Taste that drug, just lick it, you know, and do something. But the whole point is, we know that's a hallucination. <laughs> we know that's something that's not true to life. Well, sometimes in certain physical or emotional conditions, we can whip ourselves into believing certain things and seeing certain things. And 500 people at one time. No, that doesn't happen. Jesus' testimony, the testimony that God gives us, is far more grounded than just minuscule mental states of possible people. We find the quality of the witnesses is some had not been believers before. That's right. I want you to know some of these people had wanted to believe. They doubted whether Jesus... Notice in John 7 and verse 5. <coughs> oh, excuse me. John 7 and verse 5. Notice, for no one does anything secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do those things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus said, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Jesus, Mary and Joseph... For those of you who maybe think Mary remained virgin after her, after Jesus was born, that's not the case. Jesus had other half brothers and sisters, through Joseph and Mary. They had, him. and one of them was James, the great writer we read of the Church of Jerusalem. But at this time, he didn't believe. He didn't believe. And others in Acts one and verse fourteen. They didn't believe, but then they came to believe because of the resurrection of Jesus. Thomas was a man who demanded empirical evidence. 
I will not say that Jesus has rose from the dead until I see the wounds. The next Lord's Day, he did. He saw the wounds. Thomas was, you might call him, some people say he was doubting Thomas. Well, he was doubting, all right. He wanted some, some absolute proof, and he got it. But then Jesus said, blessed are those who believe on me through your word. So we have to believe the testimony because none of us can physically see Jesus. We have to believe the testimony. Are these credible witnesses? Yes. A former persecutor, Paul? Yes. These were resistant eyewitnesses that were not gullible followers and wanted to believe blindly. They had strong witness. Empirical testimony. That's what we're talking about in the scripture. And they had also the evidence of transformed lives. Their lives turned around. They now had a new hope, new peace, new joy. Whenever they faced death, they faced it different than people who were in the world. If it was a lie I believed in, if I said, yeah, I saw, I saw Jesus, sure, yeah, I saw Jesus. Me too. Who, who saw Jesus? I did. I saw Jesus. And you go, okay, well, we're going to throw you to the lion. Oh, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe, you know, maybe I had too much to drink. Maybe I took the wrong pills. Maybe. <laughs> uh, you would start backing up and you'd say, wait a minute. Whenever you face death, are you really going to face it and die? The apostles did. The apostles did. Why die for a lie? Why? They didn't. They absolutely believed that Jesus Christ came forth from the dead. Then their lives showed it. And their lives demonstrated it. And more importantly... The moral standard, 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. Notice the moral standard of Christianity. It is really clear what the Bible has to say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Finally, brethren, he says here, We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us instruction how you ought to walk and please God as you actually do walk that you excel even more. For you know the commandment that we gave you by the authority of Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality, and that you should you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and default his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. And notice, he didn't call them for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification, verse 7. All of these kinds of terminology. In other words, the moral standard of Christians was higher than the culture in which they lived. And so they believed in remaining faithful and true and holy, which means separate from sin. We don't find a group of 500 liars we don't find 12 liars that would die for their faith. We find these people had the highest moral standards, and they would not lie in just to keep safe face about Christianity if they knew it was fake or knew it was false. Notice the personal sacrifices of many of the Christians at that time. In 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, if you're taking notes, notice 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, verse 11. Notice he says here, to the present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, and 
are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. We toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. When we <coughs> become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I don't think I write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved brethren. He's saying, look, we were treated horribly. We were treated wrongly. But we're going to remain faithful to what we believe about Jesus Christ. Did you see him resurrected? Absolutely. Even if that means getting beat up one more time. In 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24, he says here, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. The apostle Paul says, I was beaten almost to death several times. Notice, five times, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and the night I had spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journey and dangers from thieves and robbers. Why would I do all this for a lie? I'm not getting rich off this. He said, a lot of times I work for myself. I provide for myself. I've, I've had these things happen to me. He had the highest personal standards. They were credible eyewitnesses is what I'm saying. The nature of their testimony, the changes in their lives, their willingness to die for what they believed, their testimony is true, led us to trust their witness, their testimony. The significance of their witness is unimpeachable. Un, un, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, they were liars. We, they suffered knowingly for a lie. The world's highest standards of morality was written by a bunch of deceivers. Is it reasonable? Here's my question. Is it reasonable to believe that they purposely propagated a lie. Is that reasonable? What were they going to get out of it? What were they going to get out of it? What do you get out of it? Well, a lot of times, Christ places restrictions on our behavior. Things that we desire to flesh that would satisfy the flesh. He tells us to turn away from things that are truly joyful. We're thankful for that. And we founded our lives on things which are solid and right and good. And we're thankful later that we did that and not on just the pleasures of the flesh. But there are reasons why we should believe the testimony of the Bible writers because of the way they were treated and because of the things that they had to endure in order to sustain their message. If Jesus did rise from the dead... We have a living hope, a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, of our own resurrection, verse Thessalonians 4. If he rose from the dead, we are going to have a resurrection as well. Why do you have a hope of heaven? Why do you look forward to something in the future? Because of Jesus. That's what keeps us going, is we know there's something that outlasts us. Like Emerson said, the great use of life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. That's right. All the stuff you have in this world, it's going to go to your kids, and they're probably going to trash it. My daughter keeps saying, as I look in my garage, she goes, Dad, all this is going into town when you're dead. <laughs> Thanks. The whole fact of the matter is, what are you giving it? Why are you, why are you working for that? 
Why do we labor for that? We don't. We use things to accomplish life's purpose. I hope that's why you do what you do. I hope you live for God. Because if not, you have a very narrow, if non-existent, meaning for living. Where is significance in what you do? Where is meaning in what we do? The meaning is, is to remind us that this shell of a body, which holds our eternal spirit made in the image of God, is that we will lay this aside one day we will take off these old clothes, as it mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. We'll lay those clothes aside, and then we'll wait for the clothing that comes from God. We wait for a dwelling place, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I look forward to that one. I'm not planning on getting this one back, folks. Yeah. I'm planning on the dwelling and the clothing that comes from God. Reba, whenever we talk about funerals a lot of the time, we go to a lot of funerals and stuff like that. And, you know, whenever I see guys napping in a suit, I go, how uncomfortable. Wouldn't they rather take off the tie? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Bible calls what we have sleep because he knows that one day we're going to awake. And so I told my wife, I said, I do not want to be buried in a suit. Yeah. You go by and you look at your friends and you go, they look really uncomfortable. I just do that. I'm sorry. I want, you know, a t-shirt, maybe, or some sleeve pants or something, but I said pajamas. I want pajamas. If you come by and I'm not in pajamas, you tell Reba that's not what I'm wanting. <laughs> because that's what I want. Now, I want to be buried in pajamas. <laughs> because the Bible says it's sleep. And I can think of nothing worse than trying to get a nap in than a suit. You know, just terrible. But most especially, I look forward to whatever God's got prepared for me to put on whenever I get to heaven. I know this is going to last. Whatever goes in the grave, it's kind of rough. Going pretty rough, whatever. But I have a robe from God. Well, look, eternal. I don't know what it's like. It's got to be better than this. Eyes were designed by Satan. We have to look forward to something that is amazing past this life. We look forward to our own resurrection. That's what the scripture says. We have a reason to rejoice. Let's, let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Let, let's read it together. I want your hope to be strong this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. <coughs> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now he's talking about those who are, have died in Thessalonica. He says that we we will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Talking about those early Christians that have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. That's the comfort we have. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have a living hope that because Jesus Christ came forth from the dead, so will we by the power of God, and that we will look forward to being with him forever. And that's something to look forward to. We have a reason to rejoice. Plus, it means whatever he taught us is true. When Jesus Christ came forth from the grave, that means I can trust what he said right here. Right here, this promise there will be a day that we'll all come forth from the grave. Read also Romans. The evidence for Christ's resurrection, the number of witnesses, the quality of witnesses, the strength of the witness, the significance of their witness is our defense for our hope. And we can give a reason for the hope that lies within us. This morning, I want to remind you of why you do what you do. And it's not dependent upon any other, anybody else's sincerity or hypocrisy. It's not just on the, the basis of whether they remain faithful or not, or if our mom and dad remain faithful or not, or if our children remain faithful or not. It shouldn't be dependent upon anybody else's faith or lack of saying. It's ours. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? And that way you can be faithful. You can have joy. You can have peace. <coughs> Those who follow you, those who listen to you, Timothy, they can have and share in that hope as well. I ask you not to try to whip yourself into an emotional state about your religion. I ask you to reassure the foundation. Read the scriptures that are fulfilled. I have a, a, not only... Isaiah 53, I have Psalms 22 open up here. I'm not going to take time to read. But I want you to understand that the nature of prophecy shows that the Bible is divine. It's inspired of God. Whenever he said all of these things were going to happen. You know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they couldn't figure out. The Bible says the coming Messiah, he's going to be a suffering Savior. He's going to die. He's going to you know, Isaiah 53 and, and Psalms 22. And the other one says, no, he's going to be a king priest at the same time. I wonder which. The book of Hebrews is written to show us that he was both. He was a king priest and a sacrifice. My friends, you can't read the book of Hebrews and understand it without it fortifying your faith. I, I just want to encourage you on the, in that, if you can. But here, most important Christians this morning we're right here to practice the Lord's Supper. We're here to partake of something which represents the sacrificed body of Jesus. Why did Jesus want us to think about his death? There's a reason. He says, I want you to fight sin just like I did in my life. It was tempted in all points, yet without sin. I want you to fight it. I want you to remember every week the fight you've got this next week to be holy and separate from sin. And notice, I gave my body as a living sacrifice, a pure sacrifice. Unleavened loaf represents that one body of which we all partake. He shed pure blood 
for my forgiveness, which ratified a new covenant by where I gain access to the benefits of Christ's death. It's through the covenant that he made. And all of this together is pictured on the Lord's table. But there's one more thing on the Lord's table that's pictured. Don't forget it without the last phrase. I want you to do this until I come. This is only going to be practiced, uh, practiced a limited number of time. And this morning, that number went down by one. This is only going to happen limited number of time, then the Lord will come himself. Do this till I come. He's coming back. He's coming back for us. And we who have a living hope look forward to that day. But today, we're going to eat and drink in remembrance of him and make that commitment to remain faithful knowing that we're one communion closer to meeting him in person. That's so wonderful to know that our hope is alive and it's wonderful. This morning, do you have that hope? Do you have that peace? I don't know what you believe, but I hope it's not a feeling. I hope you trust that whenever Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again, that where I am, there ye may be also. <clears throat> Look forward to that. Look forward to hearing, well done. Look forward to that day. Is that your personal motivation? Is that something that gets you awake every morning? You go, ah, for one day I can serve God one more day. <clears throat> and if not, then I wait and I become part of those who under the altar cry, Lord, how long, how long? Till we're redeemed. Till our body is redeemed. My friends, when you die, your consciousness is going to remain with you. Your body's going to, you're going to lay it aside. Yeah. That hard of hearing, that lack of hair, whatever it is that you resent about your body, it's going to get old. You know, it's going to die. That spirit, the inner man is renewed day I get more excited. One day closer. One day closer. If you want that faith, that living faith, you're going to have to act upon it. I hope we've maybe convinced you this morning that Jesus fulfilled prophecy by reading Isaiah 53. Read it again. Where there he was slain for us. But he redeemed us. He, he looked forward to it because he could bring many sons to glory, the Bible says. And uh, found another lesson on the purpose of Jesus. He's going to bring many sons to glory, and he wanted to save you. If you want to accept his gift of salvation in your faith, repent of your sins this morning. Luke 13, 3, confess his name before men. Matthew 10, 32, and we will baptize you in a likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. And resurrection. Romans 6, 1 through 6. If you haven't done that, do it while we stand in the same.